0: Our Bible reading this morning is taken from Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four. We're going to read from verse one and we'll read right down to verse. 14 Let's hear the word of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness with long suffering forbearing one another in love, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Amen. We'll end the reading there at verse 14 and we pray the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the holy scriptures. Now my text this morning is taken from Ephesians chapter 4 and I want us to think in primarily about verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. And my theme today is the Christian's great calling and conduct. Now most Bible commentators and scholars are all agreed that the book of Ephesians can be divided into two equal parts. There are six chapters. The first three chapters are doctrinal and the next three chapters are practical. That's chapters four, five, and six. In other words, Ephesians chapters 1 to 3 is a wonderful and glorious exposition of the great doctrine of God's salvation in Christ alone. And we think of the words for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves as the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then chapters 4 through to 6 Paul turns his attention to the practical outworking of that salvation in Christ. And here he is, starting in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1, he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. The word therefore means in view of this. Here's Paul starting to set forth the practical application of this doctrine of salvation that he's presented. And these things are not just a mere duty in his mind. But these are very serious and weighty exhortations directed to every child of God in every church in every age. I believe that Ephesians chapters 4 through to 6 is designed to teach And to instruct the child of God how to live out his or her Christian life in the church, in their home environment, in the workplace and the world of work is important. And also in the very world and society that's godly, uh, godless and antichrist. Here in chapter 4 verse 1 we have a very general exhortation. Notice the words to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. That word vocation young people just means calling. So it literally could read to walk worthy of the calling wherewith ye are called. That's The call of God to repent and believe the gospel and receive Christ as Lord and Savior and begin to experience and enjoy God's salvation. And then following that from verse 2 onwards, you have general exhortations on how to walk worthy. Notice the word here in verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness. With long suffering, forbearing one another in love. Now, remember, Paul at this time is a prisoner at Rome. And in Rome, in the prison cell, he views himself as a prisoner of the Lord. Now, this is something that he's mentioned before in chapter 3, verse 1. He wants us to understand, therefore, that he is not ashamed of his imprisonment. He's not ashamed of his chains, his bonds, or his circumstances. He is there not suffering as an evildoer, not suffering as a murderer or as a thief. He's not suffering as a busybody. He is there simply because he was a preacher of the gospel. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord send me some relief. What about some bread and chicken? He doesn't say, uh, I'm in hardship and bondage here, so I, I need your help. He doesn't say, well, look, get a petition going to try and get me released. He doesn't say, well, this is a violation of my human rights and I'm put in prison. He doesn't say to the people of God, raise an army to, to fight so that I can be set free. But what does he write about? What does he mention to this church That you would approve yourselves to be good Christians. That you would walk worthy of your Christian profession. That that you would live up to your calling in Christ. The the word walk worthy means walk suitably or walk agreeably. Walk carefully and, and happily to those circumstances into which the grace of God has brought you. Remember, he's saying to them, that you have been converted. You've been converted from heathenism to true Bible-believing Christianity. And now that you're born again, now that you're soundly saved, now that you've been genuinely converted, now you're in Christ, now the blood has been applied, you are to live out the gospel. In the church, in the home, in the workplace, in society. And if you've been called by the gospel, having repented and believed the gospel message, if you've been called to uh, glory, then you must live then to the glory of God. So often I think we forget that we're called Christians. And every Christian Is meant to be a little Christ on earth. And we must. Answer that name. By how we live. And we're to live. Like Christians. We're to live like Christ lived. You see we have been called to live. Under the reign and rule of God. We have been called into the kingdom of light. A kingdom of glory. A kingdom of holiness. And we must. Keep this in mind. And we must not only keep it in mind, but we must live as if we're heirs of the kingdom of light, the kingdom of glory, the kingdom of God. And that's what he's dealing with here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. And as you think of the theme today, the Christian's great calling and conduct, let me set before you three things, if I can. I want you to think about the spirituality of the Christian's conduct. You see, if we were to ask ourselves, How are we to conduct ourselves as a Christian? How do we conduct ourselves as a true child of God? If you think of these words that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called, hi. Here's the answer. Look at verse two. With all lowliness. Now we'll pause there. Oh, what does that mean? See, lowliness has to do with humility. It's humility before God and man. God wants his children to be humble. In fact, the Bible says to us in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 6, "Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God." You see, the opposite of humility is pride. Humility is the opposite of pride. And God hates pride. Pride is one of the seven deadly sins. You think of that word, pride, young people, P-R-I-D-E. What's the middle letter? Well, it's the letter I. And what has I to do with? It has to do with self. And you see, I means me first. And do we not live in the me first generation? Remember the story of the prodigal son to his father, give me. You see, we can think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And if a person in the house of God or in the home or a workplace or whatever is full of pride and they think that they're better than anyone else, then that attitude, that mindset is going to impact and have an effect especially on the life and witness of the church. And selfish pride can breed other sins. Jealousy, lust, greed, bitterness, gossiping, discord, busybody, having an evil tongue. You see, in 3 John, that's the epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, John, there was a man in the church called Diophres. And John wrote about him, and he said, when I was writing to the church, Diophrase, he loved to have the preeminence. He was high up in the church, and when John came, remember, he's the apostle of love. What did Diophrase say to the church? Don't let John in. Don't receive him. Don't listen to him. And you can read about this in 3 John verses 9 through to 10. John says, this man's pratting against us with malicious words. And not just himself, but he's forbidding others to receive us. And those that do receive us, well, he's casting those people out of the church. You see, Deophores, he loved the preeminence but he didn't see that his carnality, he didn't see that his attitude and mindset was one of pride, selfish pride, and it was having a damaging effect upon the life and the witness of the church. I always remember the late Dr. Paisley saying about some people have pride of face, and pride of race, and pride of lace, really to do with their clothing. And their pride of grace. And the question that should come to us is this, what has any Christian ever got anything to be proud about? If we see pride as a sin, one of the seven deadly sins, and a pride comes before a fall, then we've got to be aware and adopt the Attitude that this pride needs to be repented of If we're to humble ourselves before the Lord That he might exalt us in due time Then we need to be aware of the damning And the dangerous sin of pride Turn over there to First Corinthians chapter 4 And in the verse 7 Paul asked this question to the church at Corinth Who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou had not received it? You see, what's he saying there? Who maketh thee to differ from another? Because we're all in the same boat. We're all ordinary clay. We're all sinners. We're all miserable sinners. We've all got souls and we need to be saved. And then he asked the second question, and what hast thou that thou didst not receive? You see, all that we have got this morning, even the very precious gift of life, the gift of breath, the gift of food, the gift of family, everything else, we've all received it from the Lord. And, and we're to glory in the things that, that God has given us. We're, we're, to, we're to glory in Him and in the gifts that He has given. And then of all that we've got, God has given it to us, then let's glory in him and let's be thankful unto him and bless his name. Think again of what Paul stressed there to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10. It's a verse that I love and have underlined. He says, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was in me. You see, here's true poverty of spirit. It's seeing yourself. I am what I am by the grace of God. And once you come to the place where you say, "I am nothing, and I can do nothing, and I have nothing to recommend me to God." then we realize that this grace that was bestowed, I haven't earned it. And we're saved by grace, but we also live by grace. When he speaks of with all lowliness, remember he's talking about an attitude and a frame of mind. It's lowliness of mind. And it's this attitude, lowliness of mind, that makes us different. And, and, and therefore, this is the opposite of pride, the opposite of self-promotion, the opposite of self-interest. And this was a true feature of likeness to Jesus Christ. This is a true feature of true Christian likeness to Christ. Remember what we read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7? He humbled himself. And we could think this morning about the steps of Christ's humiliation. This perfect servant of Jehovah. This is the one in John 13 that took the towel in the basin and washed his disciples' feet. The lowest task. It's Christ that does it. He does it gladly. He does it willingly. He does it joyfully. It's not belief him. And we have to think of the lowliness of Christ. And if Christ humbled himself, then we ought to clothe ourselves with this mindset as well. If we could ask the question, what does God require of you this morning? In Micah 6 and 8, part of the answer is to walk humbly with thy God. And among the Lord's people in the church, among men in society, we are to walk humbly before the Lord. God hates pride, God will not tolerate pride. Pride will eventually bring us down. And if I ask again, what have any of us got to be proud about? Have we not got the same Father, our Heavenly Father? Have we not the same Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord? Have we not got the same Spirit, We've been born of the Spirit, we're indwelt by the Spirit, we've got gifts by the Spirit. Are we not washed in the blood of Christ? Are we not all equally justified? There's not one of us this morning better than any other. And if we're born of the same Spirit and washed in the same blood and adopted into the same family, then what have any of us really got to be proud about? And if we're going to promote a peaceable unity in the church Then we must clothe ourselves with humility Peter, Paul rather, is dealing with the subject of unity here True Christian unity He says endeavouring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace We can't do that if we're full of pride Notice also here, if you look at our text With all loneliness and meekness Now, what does that mean? We're just thinking about the spirituality of Christians' conduct. The idea here of meekness is being gentle, being kind, being tender-hearted, having a forgiving spirit. If you can write down the chapter to the last verse, it says, well, we'll take the context. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Look at verse 32, and be ye kind one to another tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And remember, this also is an attitude of our heart and mind. If we think of Moses, he was one of the meekest men who ever lived. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul, from the day he got saved, knew that the Lord Jesus had made him a steward of the gospel. In other words, the gospel was entrusted to his care. And he was faithful to the blood in the book. He was faithful to the doctrine of salvation as God had given it to him. And he would come into any place to labor and to preach and to teach the word of God. How did he come? He didn't come as a man pleaser. He, he knew that he had to keep his eye on the Lord which trieth all men's hearts. He didn't come with flattering words. He didn't come with a, a cloak of covetousness. He didn't come seeking glory. But how did he come? He's coming as a faithful steward. God has given him the gospel. Like a, 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 a wonderful deposit to keep. We'll turn over there to Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7. I want you to see this. Maybe you should underline this verse. This is important. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 7. Listen to these words. But we were gentle among you. Even as a nurse Cherishes her children Do you see that? In Thessalonica Paul's come as a faithful steward With the gospel The doctrine of salvation And what does he say? I labored among you as a nurse As a nursing mother to her children You think of a mother in the home And there's mothers here God bless you Love to see you I, I think the world of you And what does a mother do? She gives of herself. She gives all that she has. It's not about her. It's about her children. And she sacrifices her time. She is patient. She makes every effort. All that she does is for the good and the welfare of her children. Their comforts. Their interests. Their needs. In fact her children. Comes before her own. We all come from homes this morning. You mothers, when you made the breakfast, who did you make breakfast for? Did you have your own breakfast first? I, I would nearly say this morning in every home, the mother made the breakfast for the children and for the husband before she ever got her own. That, that's, of course, what happens in our home. And you think of a, a, a sick child in the home. And what does that mummy do? Well, she is a nurse to that sick child. Think of Paul Thessalonica I'm here as a nursing mother Turn over there to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 2 Corinthians chapter 10 Now keep in mind what I've said Look at verse 1 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 1 Now I Paul myself beseech you How? Look at the text. By the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, who in presence and base among you. In other words, he humbled himself. But being absent and bold toward you. In other words, he was writing with power and authority of the Holy Spirit. If I ask this morning, how do we deal with each other? It's not to be harshly. It's not with backbiting. It's not with a spirit of murmuring. It's not certainly look at her. It's not with a complaining attitude. It's not with bitterness. It's not with pride. It's not with one-upmanship. In our treatment of others, does it reflect the gentleness and the meekness of Christ? You see, if someone's upset, they're hurt, and they're mad, and they're disappointed in the life and witness of the church, what do you do? Well, if you're responsible for that hurt and that disappointment, then you go to your brother and sister, and you confess your sin, and you ask for forgiveness, and you seek to be reconciled. That's the teaching of Luke chapter 17, verse 3. That's the teaching of Christ. Christ. And if someone comes to worship God and remembers I have done something against my brother or my sister Then what do they do? They go first and be reconciled to their brother and sister before they come and present themselves before the Lord You see, this is how the Lord Jesus deals with us Graciously, gently, kindly, forgiving all our sins And do we show and display this gentleness, this kindness in dealing with others? Meekness has to do with submitting to God and the things of God Submission to God when there's something that we feel is wrong in our lives. Think of Romans 8 and verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are the called according to his purpose. And when bad things happen, as they do, and things that we can't understand, then what do we do? We kneel down with David and we pray, Lord, help me. We we say, Lord, teach me. We say, Lord, search me. We accept his dealings in our lives and recognize and realize that this is for our good. And even these dark providences, when there's darkness and despair and difficulty all around, what do we do? We trust in the Lord with all our heart. And we lean not in our own understanding. And in all thy ways, we acknowledge him. And at times we have to come and say, Lord, I can't see your plan And I can't see your purpose that you've allowed this to come into my life or our life or the life of my family. But Lord, in this darkness, in this difficulty, in my pain, Lord, I'm going to trust you. Because this meekness has to do with submission to God in the things of God. Do we submit like that? Look again at our text. It says there in Ephesians 4 and 2. With long suffering What does that mean Young people that has to do with patience The Lord's people are to be patient And what's the opposite Of long suffering It's short suffering And many of us And I confess myself included We have a short fuse And we be quick tempered Especially when things are going wrong And we can behave at times In a churlish manner Or would even get mad You think of somebody That's hurt in the church Somebody feels that they've been wronged Church hasn't done something right By them And what's their attitude I've never come back to that church Never darken the door again Never speak to another free Presbyterian what are they forgetting? They're forgetting that in their calling of the outworking of this Christian profession that they're meant to be long-suffering with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember the story of Nabal, Abigail's husband? He was a churlish man. He was outworking. His wife came to him and asked for food for David and his men, and he flew into a temper. He flew into a, a rage. God's people are not to be like that. James 1 and 19 were to be slow to anger, were to be slow to wrath, were to be slow to speak, were to be quick to listen. See, God's people, out of all the people in the earth, they're meant to be long suffering. They're meant to put up with things. Oh, they'll not be perfect. Could I tell you, you're not going to find the perfect church? Do you know that the church is made up of imperfect people? Remember we're ordinary human clay We're sinners, we're miserable sinners And even though we're saved We're still saved sinners We're still going to sin And in any situation Let's not be too quick to jump in And give a verdict We may not know all the facts We may not know all the details We may not have all the circumstances to hand Let's not behave in a thoughtless manner Let's remember we all make mistakes Let's get our eyes on the Lord Because it's so easy to jump to the wrong conclusion and as I've said, remember, we're all sinners. And remember, we've all different levels of maturity. And there's areas in which we'll make a mistake more readily than, than other people. And yet in the things that are missing in the church today is this mindset of long-suffering. Bible says, let patience have our perfect work. Notice also here it says in our text, if you go back to Ephesians, it says something else. Forbearing one another Do you see that What does that mean That means putting up with one another You've put up with me for 21 years almost And I'm, I'm grateful for that And you've shown great forbearance But putting up with one another Even with our failures Even with our mistakes Even with our faults Even with our sins Showing great restraint Under provocation even There are things that will disturb us. We confess things are not the way it should be. We confess that things are not always done right. But you know what? We're to keep our eye on Christ. Isn't it the little things that irritate us? Isn't it the little speck of dust in the eye that irritates you and affects your sight? Isn't it the little grain of sand in the shoe that irritates you and affects your walk? And what do we need? We need to forbear. Remember John and James, the sons of thunder. The Lord Jesus had sent them to a certain village. They were to go and preach and teach and make ready for his visitation. And uh, the people in the village said, you know what, James and John, clear off. We don't want you here. Get out. We don't want to listen to your preaching. Okay. Well, James and John went back to the Lord Jesus and said, in certain villages, they didn't want us. They wouldn't listen to us. They refused us. They told us to get out. Lord, can we call down fire from heaven? Let's burn up the whole lot, Lord. Let's send out a message throughout Palestine that this type of attitude is not going to be tolerated. What did the Lord Jesus say? Go to the next village. Shake off the dust of your feet as a testimony, as a witness to get the Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. And there's times when we must forbear. Could I say this this morning? And I want you to listen to me very carefully. Whenever a brother or a sister in Christ who's made a credible profession of faith in Christ, who's walked for years with the Savior, and they fall into a grievous sin. Maybe one of the young people, or an older person, or a minister, or an elder. Maybe even a sexual sin. And what do we do? Well, we shun that individual. We give him the silent treatment. We we shut him off and and say, well, he's not welcome in our company. I've asked myself, what's Christ's mindset to that? Would it not be to forbear with that brother in love? I, I could give you an illustration this morning of someone who committed a real grievous sin, even within the context of the Free Presbyterian Church. And I can tell you that brother was visited in his home the first thing that was said to him, brother, I am not here to condemn you. But brother, I'm not here to condone your sin. And, and your sin was wrong before the eyes of the Lord. And that brother was fondly embraced. But I'm here to talk to you about your need. And I'm here to talk to you about the Lord. And I'm here to pray with you. And I want to show you and convince you from God's word. And I want you to let the Holy Spirit convict you of your sin. Because that's the way ministers and elders should be in the house of God Remember the nursing mother Paul was a nursing mother in Thessalonica And the people that were there that were hurting and needed him He was there as a nursing mother See this is all part of the spirituality of the Christian's conduct Look again at chapter 4 verse 2 And what does it say in the last part Forbear one another in love Friday was Valentine's Day. What is true love? Let me read what the Bible says, young people. True love is. It says this. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not evilly provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity, which is an old Elizabethan word for love, never faileth. You see, when you love someone, you'll put up with a lot. And if you love that person, you won't treat them badly or harshly. Even if they grievously sin against you, you'll forbear with them in love. That's what true love is. Now, that's only the first point. And I should be winding up. But bear with me just for a few minutes, and I'm going to give you the rest of the sermon in about three or four minutes. I want you to think of the secret of Christian conduct. Because what is the secret of living out the Christian life? I believe it's this. To be like Christ. Remember we're Christians. Little Christ on earth. We sing a little chorus. To be like Jesus. To be like Jesus. All I ask is to be like him. All through life's journey from earth to glory. All I ask is to be like him. What was Christ like? He was lowly. He was meek. He was long-suffering. He forbore with us in our sinful estate. The Bible says... But God commended his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And is Christ not the very embodiment of what true love is? If God is love, then the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, he is also love. And what do we read of Christ? Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. The church of Jesus Christ is precious to Christ. He All that he did was for the church. He lived for the church. He died for the church. He gave himself for the church. The church was all its interest. He is the church's head. And he calls us, if the church is precious to him, to see that the church, the local assembly, communion of saints, is precious also to us. And he calls us then to maintain True unity within the body of Christ That's Christ's will for us And the more that Christ is in the centre And the more that Christ Like Christ we become And if we realise that Christ is in us The hope of glory And we're in union with Christ And Christ is being formed in us Then the more we'll Endeavour to maintain that true unity Now we're not naturally like this We must pray for this We must work hard at it We must apply the grace of God. The grace of God can make me like this. When we see each other, we should be thinking about a brother and sister in Christ. And we should be praying, Lord, help me to be lowly and help me to be meek and long suffering. Help me to be kind. Help me to be gentle. Help me, Lord, to be forgiving even when somebody sins against me. And do it for Christ's sake. That's the secret of Christian conduct. be like Jesus could we not pray Lord make me more like Christ and think of this as we finish the sphere of Christian conduct see in the context here I believe Paul is thinking about the local church and in the local church the church is precious to Jesus Christ and therefore the church must be precious to us and when we think about Christian unity in the church, we're not thinking about tolerating heresy or apostasy or false doctrine. We're not even talking about tolerating sin. We're not being soft in sin. We're not turning a blind eye to sin. We're not turning a blind eye to problems. There will be problems. It cannot be unity and peace at any cost. But what I want to say is this. Being faithful to Christ and our calling will cause us to remember that the sphere of Christian conduct is lived out in the church. And as Christ is lowly and meek and long-suffering and forbearance and operated in love, then that's how we will live out our Christian life in the church as well. Remember, church unity can be easily damaged. Remember, there's often needless divisions and discord among God's people. There'll never be a perfect congregation. We're full of imperfections and sin. Problems are nothing new. The manifestation of sin is nothing new. But we must make every effort to exercise a most peaceable unity among ourselves. If the church is precious to Christ and precious to us, then the unity of the church will be important. And I can tell you, and the brethren here, these office bearers that serve with me here in the work of God, we're all equals. We have never let our differences, and there have been many of them, and you know that, but we've never let our differences divide us. You see, if we're in union with Christ, then remember, we're brothers and sisters. We're all in union with Christ. I'm in union with Christ. And if you're in Christ, you're in union with Christ. And one of the first spheres where we live out our Christian conduct is in the church. But we also live it out in the home. That's why Paul deals with husband and wife relationship. That's why he deals with the workplace. That's why he deals with the wider society and the warfare that we face as Christians. But notice he starts with the unity of the church. Being like Christ. Christ before he moves into the home setting and before he deals into society. So I leave this thought with you this morning. Our conduct, the Christian's great calling and conduct, we're called to repent and believe the gospel, we're called into Christ, and there has to be a spirituality about our conduct. Here's how to do it. We have to remember the secret, it's being like Christ. And here's the sphere. It starts in the house of God. Isn't it so sad when many of God's dear people because they've been hurt and because their problem has never been dealt with in a biblical way have left the house of God never to return. May the Lord help us to be different in carried Duff.